Hello and welcome back to the See For Yourself podcast, the only podcast where all of our calls are coming from inside the house. I am your host for today, the notorious James Bond villain, Nipples Extravaganza, and I am joined here today with Craig Penderson. Craig Penderson, it's lovely to have you today. I have a our first and possibly only fan-suggested film uh, mm. for us today. And the, the name of the film is Titan or Titan. I can't tell exactly. The blurb for the film goes as follows. A woman with a titanium plate fitted in her head embarks on a bizarre journey when she's forced to go on the run. And that's all we've got. Craig, do you have anything for us? What are what are your first thoughts on that blurb? What are your first thoughts on this film? So the titanium plate, clearly. I mean that that's the fo- that's all we know about the character so far. So that's gotta be important. It it is kind of nice to have that because the name of the movie is like, you know, Titan or Titane. I think it's supposed to be Titane. Titane just kind of you know, it's like it's one of those weird words. You're not really sure exactly what it's you know pointing towards, and then immediately the blurb gives you the answer. Right. I'm I'm wondering if this is like. Um, did you ever play? God, I can't I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a post-apocalyptic world where everybody's fighting with spears, but they're fighting against robot animals. Horizon Zero Dawn. Yeah, yeah uh, Horizon Zero Dawn. The the main character's name is Alloy. So I'm wondering if that's maybe Titan is the main character's name, and it's like, well, why do you call her that? Well, she's got a titanium thing in her head, so she that's Titan right there. So is this you uh, predicting that the the movie will be sort of like a post-apocalyptic situation? Yeah, we yeah I'm gonna go go with something like that. Some something happens to the world and um and this character's titanium fitted uh skull is uh focal to 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 uh the plot here <laughs> uh, yeah as a result or somehow focal to it i do want to say that i'm familiar with the director for this film julia uh i cannot pronounce that last name i'm gonna give it a try it's, child. it's, it's julia child julia du corn cornois I'm, I'm not sure. I probably just butchered that. I could look up the director, but I'd probably butcher it in my own way. She's a French director, and she did a French film that I'm, I have very near and dear to my heart, uh, Raw, which is uh, basically a film about being a vegan, effectively. But okay. again, it's in that sort of horror genre. Titan is a horror film. We neglected to mention that. And we also neglected to mention that this will be a golden episode, an episode where neither myself nor my co-host have seen the the movie the phenomenal in fact uh as far as i can tell you and i are both relatively ignorant to this film yeah i I definitely never heard of it before Uh, what was the rest of that blurb aside from the the titanium skull she's on the run yes so a woman titanium skull goes on a bizarre journey and is forced to go on the run i do i do like the use of the word bizarre journey because this feels a little bit like jojo's bizarre adventure here um and any any chance i have to bring up jojo's bizarre adventure obviously i'm gonna take it Uh, of course (laughs) I feel like the bizarre aspect of this journey is going to be something like, oh, it's in the post-apocalypse. Everybody doesn't have food. Ah! Or something like that. As opposed to something like actively bizarre. It's like... I'm wanting something like, oh yeah, everybody out here decides that they make all their decisions based off of games of rock, paper, scissors or something like that. That'd be cool. There's, uh, There's this game I've been playing recently, Scarlet Nexus. I bring that up because... I'm so fixated on this titanium plate. It it has me thinking of the conspiracy theorist folk that have like aluminum hats. So I'm wondering if this bizarre adventure has something to do with the fact that like maybe it's not post-apocalyptic and it's just in the future. 
everybody's got like chips in their brain that lets them, uh, you know, interact with the world in a certain way. You know, in- instead of having commercials, we just broadcast shit right into your head. So she ends up in some sort of accident, has to have a titanium plate in her head for whatever reason. And, and I don't know, we're, we're futuristic enough to put chips in people's brains, but we don't realize that the plate turns off the chip because she's got the titanium plate in her head. She, she sees the world how it really is. I think that's, that, I think that's brilliant. I, I think that is probably, I think you might be nailing it right on the head here. Sometimes, Craig, you just say things that just feel like they're threading the needle. And I can't, I cannot help but stand in awe of your ability to just really give the predictions that you've got the special sauce, man. You got that secret stuff. This is that, one of those predictions. That, I'm gonna, actually, you know, I bet it's not going to be, my predictions are going to be wrong. And this is going to be another one of those see for yourself did it better moments oh oh oh, oh, see for yourself did it better moments my heart (laughs) (laughs) jesus i'm interested and very hopeful for the titanium skull plating thing works as a tinfoil hat theory i think that theory super cool and the bizarre it answers the bizarre aspect of her adventure you know it's bizarre because everybody is out here being controlled and she's the only one who can see the world for what it is um and she has to go on the run because the government's on to her this answers all the questions in the everything the, the whole nerve is solved by tinfoil hat i i love that i'm interested in a a concept where the titanium implant in her brain affects maybe the way that she engages emotionally with people i know that the director for this film she is a very emotionally intelligent individual it seems like her movies feel like they're trying to make me feel something the whole film and they're constantly engaging with me on an emotional level at least with the one other film i've seen of her and that being raw i'm interested to see how this movie will do that and i'm wondering if maybe this will be exploring like well once we get to a point in technology and human science where we can interact with the brain in a more casual sense and we just put, you know, titanium pieces in people's brains for whatever reason. And we're just doing brain surgery every other day and it's perfectly fine. Will medical science reach the point where it's willing to accept that there's an emotional component to being human and an emotional component to uh, medical science that we need to address when doing these types of surgeries and when being medical practitioners? I wonder if that'll be the aspect of it that's that's being engaged with. Because we... We talk about this all the time. Me and my grandmother talk about this a lot. It seems like doctors a lot of the time don't want to engage with the fact that like uh, like broken heart syndrome where somebody dies and then a close loved one of theirs will die within the next few weeks or the next like few days or however right. long, you know. Doctors don't understand. They're like, you know, this, this man was several years older than his wife. He died off because he had heart disease or whatever. She was perfectly healthy. And then shortly after that, she died for no real explainable reason. And they just jock it up to old age or whatever have you. But the real reason was, you know, she died of a broken heart. You know, a lot of people would say, and you know, you it's easy to sort of write that off as like a non-scientific answer. But I think that there is some degree of legitimacy to that. I, I completely agree. Because I, there was, um, I forget the exact instances of the situation, but basically I was talking with this guy at work about that, where so basically something similar happened. Somebody's husband died, or no, it was, uh, God, can I bring it up? Those shootings in Texas, mm. 
at the school. Basically, yeah. this one of the teachers died, and you know her husband did the grieving, whatever. And one day he like went home and just died. And people are like, "Wow, what a what a tragedy!" Died of a broken heart. But realistic, like if you if you just step it through, because humans are fragile as, as all living hell. You know, he he went home one day and realized he had to like find a new way to live his life. You know, I'm assuming that they they had a loving relationship. Maybe that's just a full on assumption. But he, he was living his life knowing that the very next day, like it's Saturday and every Saturday we go out to the botanical gardens together. Oh, what a loving relationship. we! And he had to realize that that wasn't going to happen. And he died of a panic attack or something like that. You know, his heart, his heart literally couldn't take it. But in the physical sense, not this lovelorn thing. Like people don't realize how easily you can just drop dead. Yeah. We've, we've talked about this in the past where it's incredibly common, just drop dead from fear. Yeah. Uh, and we have statistics that indicate that this is a real thing that really does happen to toddlers. But the thing that we don't account for is how often parents will sort of lie because they don't want to admit like, yeah, I jumped out to scare my kid with a little peekaboo moment and he just fell over and stopped breathing and I couldn't resuscitate him. And I called 911 to get help. And by the time they were here, he was already dead. So when they asked what happened, I just said, we walked into the room and found him laying there like that and tried to resuscitate him and called 911. Because you know, parents are fearful people in those kinds of moments and they don't want to get blamed for murdering a child even accidentally. Right. A lot of doctors believe that there are statistics for this that are a lot worse than uh, the figures that we have now. And that happens, uh, I'm unsure how related this is, but sudden infant death syndrome, um, sure. a, a lot of that gets chalked up when when really it's like, you know, the EMTs show up and they don't want to tell the, the morbidly obese parent that they rolled over and suffocated their kid because that's, that's horrific to live with. And so they're like, oh, just SIDS. It just happened. Died in his sleep. No idea. Sure. Yeah. I imagine there, there's probably a lot of like misdiagnosing that occurs just to spare the feelings of, of somebody. And that's, that is perfectly fair. But I do think that maybe somewhere along the documentation or, you know, something like that, it should be annotated somewhere that uh, we didn't exactly tell the God's honest truth in order to spare the feelings of the person who, you know, but I guess there's really no way to do that because, you know, they have access to all their medical records and everything. And they could just find somewhere in there eventually and be like, Oh, look, it says here that I didn't actually roll. Right. The kid didn't actually have SIDS. I actually rolled over and killed them in my sleep. That's probably why it's, it's done the way that it is. But I'm, I'm hoping that the movie will have something for that. I, I'm, I'm always interested to be engaged emotionally and engaged on the emotional spectrum. And I do love a good, hearty sci-fi post-apocalypse. But I'm uh, incredibly hopeful for a really cool and neat take on how science and medicine can affect uh, us emotionally. I don't know. I'm, I'm so hinged on this tinfoil hat theory, but like maybe it, it keeps her from empathizing with other people. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe in the future we've evolved to the point where like, where we don't have like a hive mind or any sort of super psychic abilities, but maybe, maybe everybody's just able to like empathetically feel each other. And she, she's cut off from that somehow. Oh, okay. I, I like the idea of hey, we've gained some new ability and we're being cut off from it by having this titanium plate in our heads. 
I, I am reminded of um, there is a video game. The name of the the name of the game is Surge or The Surge. You play as a guy who who's in a wheelchair at the start of the game. He's going to work for this company, and in exchange for working there, he's going to get uh, these this rig attached to his skeleton that will allow him to walk again. Very expensive operation and everything, but if you sign on a certain number of years of labor. As, as part of the deal, they'll, they'll give you this, oh. this rig that's like soldered onto your skeleton as part of the deal for working for them. I think that is one, just a wonderful commentary on the state of affairs for like labor and what people are willing to do in order to live what they consider a like happy life. Right. Um, and how it's jobs a, and companies will take advantage of that. Right, privatized healthcare jumped out immediately as soon as you're like, you sign on for a couple of years, then we'll give you legs. Yeah, and that's just like its own certain type of like horrific and very relatable to our modern like issues that we're facing. I I think of that when I'm thinking about this movie. I'm hoping that the uh, the titanium plate will be sort of a commentary on privatized healthcare, and that it's not something that she got because she it was the best option, but because it was what she could afford, and it's you know, this tragic sort of thing, this tragic sort of part of her character and this tragic moment in her life. And that pushes her to sort of fight against this uh, corrupt system we have in place. And that's the adventure she goes on. This movie came out in 2021. This is like a, basically a brand new movie. Yeah. So if this director is like trying to be on top of the times and stuff like that, that is a phenomenal thing to be talking about. Yeah. It's, it's super relatable. And I think a lot of people will be able to watch and, and, and hear that kind of a story and want to uh, connect with it. If you were to give me, you know, $5 million to make a movie right now, that is the movie I would make is talking about specifically the nightmare, the horrifying system in place that is uh, privatized healthcare. I think we've, we've sort of made our predictions. It seems like we've got a couple of, a couple of good ones here. Are, is there anything that you want to predict before we hop into it? Are the, is there anything you're hoping to see, hoping not to see? You know, the blurb was so vague, it's really hard to like tie into what exactly this is going to be. I know it's a horror movie, so. It's also a French film. So this will, I think this will be our first French film on the podcast. Oh, okay. I, I don't fam- really have anything to predict, to be honest with you. Are you are you familiar at all with French filmmaking? Not not in the least. Typically, is a lot sexier. They don't have all of the same like uh, restrictions uh, regarding sex and sexuality that Americans do. Or at least oh, they, okay. they do still have some of those restrictions. They still they, they do still have some of those restrictions. It's just not as uh, harshly enforced, I guess. Okay. So uh, a fair prediction that I think I can go ahead and, and make is that I think this movie is going to be sexy in some way. I, I don't know if that means that they're just going to have a lot of feet on, on, on screen or if that means that they're going to have like, you know, full on sex scenes every chance they get. I'm not sure exactly what it'll be, but typically in French filmmaking, it is weirdly sexual. So this is all about skull plate fetish. I, I mean, there's definitely someone out there who's like, boy, oh boy, the more metal you have in your body, the more interested I, I am. <laughs> uh, I'm certain yeah. that exists. Oh yeah, I mean that of all the fetishes, really, that's not even that far out there. <laughs> so actually, that sounds pretty normal. Now that you <laughs> mentioned this is kind of awakening something in me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. <laughs> 
You think this? Uh, you think this movie is going to open your eyes to some sort of fetish that you didn't know you had? Uh, you know what? I hope so. I fucking <laughs> hope so. This that sounds brilliant. Like this is way better than the tinfoil hat thing. I would love nothing more than to find out that I've had a skull plating fetish my entire life, and I just didn't know. We're gonna come back from this movie and be like, I just, uh, I, I can't do this right now. I have to, get, I have to go find somebody that's covered in metal. I need two or three hours alone with Google right now. <laughs> oh no (laughs) honestly i hope that for us i hope that for both of us we can just have a a, a wonderful time learning about ourselves through french filmmaking that's really the point of this well that's the point of movies in general right like you gotta feel something you gotta if you don't feel something maybe learn something about yourself i think that sounds phenomenal outside of um who framed roger rabbit informing me how much i enjoy drawn women i haven't had an awakening in quite some time when was the last time you watched a movie and you really felt like you were learning or having like a big emotional moment when i was real young i watched a like that three-hour movie with the fucking kid cyborg that was supposed to be stanley kubrick's last film was it wow yeah it was actually finished by steven spielberg no shit he had already worked on uh stanley kubrick had already worked on a ton of ai he had worked on so much of it and when he died they gave the rest of the project because it was so close to being finished to like a contemporary of his that he respected uh steven spielberg yeah that's news to me i mean I, i don't know anything about the afterlife and such like that but that's gotta like if ever there was a reason to come back as a ghost with unfinished business that would be one um but you said you had a big emotional response to that film yeah yeah i think and it may have just been that tied into the fact that i was young and still like like young enough where i was still morally learning how to be a human and stuff like that and just i don't know that like that movie touches on a lot of stuff like a lot of a lot of what it what it means to be human and and prejudice and stuff like that and i feel like i was just developed enough to be ready to receive that at the time and i feel like i learned a lot when i watched it it is a very challenging film it asks a lot of its audience members and i'm glad you were sort of at that sort of sweet spot where you could learn and and accept the information that it's trying to put on you it's a beautiful thing that's yeah i'm glad to, i'm glad to hear that i know that uh i'm pretty jaded about movies lately I feel like I've seen so much and I don't really uh, have as many like big emotional moments. Uh, I feel like I, you know, watching Frank always gets me really emotional and I feel really connected to that movie. And uh, when we watched Nightingale together, that was a lot. I'm quick to forget how impactful movies can be on me emotionally. And then rewatching them, I'm like, oh God, I forgot how much this movie beat the hell out of me. Jesus Christ. Like I can't, I can't think of any movies off the top of my head, but I know there's been times where it's like, Sometimes you just need to be emotionally in the right place for it, but there's times where like something will happen in the movie and I'll be on the edge of tears. And it's like, for the most part, like that's not my reaction to things. I'm not a super emotional person, but sometimes it'll just be like, like you'll just be in that moment reminiscing about somebody you cared about a lot. And then you'll be watching the Lion King and it'll be like, dad, and and you'll just fucking shit yourself crying. I don't know mm. if that's more to speak to the movie or the moment itself. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I, I feel the same way when I'm watching a goofy movie. It just lines up so perfectly with a lot of my like feelings I have about like various family members and friends that I've had in my own personal experiences. This feels too close to home for me not to get emotional while watching this movie. Right. I think that's sort of the beauty of films is that sometimes it will just line up 
perfectly for a small handful of people. And I think that's why we have to keep making movies because everybody deserves to have that experience where they're watching something and, and thinking to themselves, like, this is just really close to my life. And it feels like if, it's- If talking. they were to make it for anybody, they made this movie for me. And that feeling is, it's, it's really cathartic because it feels like there's somebody out there, whoever made the movie or whoever was working on it, you know, that like gets you. Right. Maybe even if you don't go that far, because like it, it's phenomenal to like may- maybe somebody went through the exact same thing. And then but but at least to watch the character itself, uh, the character themselves going through that same thing and their way of dealing with it, like maybe their way of dealing in it with it isn't exactly your cup of tea. But just to know that it can be dealt with is a yeah. nice thing. A lot of times people people all the time tell me that they don't have any other options. I know it doesn't sound very good, but I tell them to not confuse their lack of imagination for effect just because you can't imagine a different option or other options or a different solution doesn't mean that those things don't exist oh for sure there's there's been plenty of points in my life where like i've definitely felt that same way it's like i'm just doing this because that's that's all there is to be done man life life keeps surprising me and it really sucks when later on in life you look back on those circumstances and you think to yourself I had other options. I had plenty of other options. I was just stuck in this one frame of mind. But we've actually recorded a little bit more than we really need here. So, you know, we're going to cut what we don't need and keep what we do. All that, that sad, sacky shit right at the end there. Like, get rid of all that shit. I, I want everybody on this podcast to know Craig Penderson is a man's man. I don't yeah. have emotions. Eating hot dogs by day and sucking dicks by night like a real man. <laughs> Okay. Well, uh, I will. I will allow you to maintain your facade of manliness, uh, Craig Penderson, and I will uh, maintain my facade of uh, James Bond uh, seductress nipple extravaganza. N- nipple, um, nipples, good galore. Oh, nipple extravaganza. I was going to say nipples. Well, galore's galore. already taken. Galore's already taken. Okay. <laughs> and we'll just move right into the film from right here. Okay. Going right now. 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 We're there. Now, We're in the now, movie. Now. now. Not now. then, but now. Now. Not before, but now. We finished the movie, and uh, uh, I'm sure there are things to be said about it. Uh, what, what do you What do you got for me, Craig? Holy Christ! I've, I'm so worried that this. See, we haven't done a smart movie in a while, and I, I don't. I don't think I'm as sharp as I, I should have been because there's a lot. There's a lot in here that like I didn't get, and I, I felt like they were trying to tell a couple different stories here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just go with the shit that I think I got. So I feel like there's a heavy theme of like body dysphoria, the troubles that trans people go through. I feel like that's a heavy theme here. Trans identity blues. Yeah, yeah, basically that. I'm trying to get past like what actually happened and trying to get into like what I think they were trying to say because there was this whole serial killer plot line that I I didn't really get and there was anyways. So yeah, she she spends a lot of this movie like maybe not a lot of this movie. But there's definitely points where she's trying, she's in the bathroom trying to break her own nose to change her face. And I know that that for the plot was that she was trying to hide her identity, but there was something really emotional there too. She spends a lot of the movie like wrapping her breasts and her pregnant stomach. And there's even a couple of times where it looks like that scarred her in the process of having to do that so often. Those are the scenes that felt very heavy to me. And so I feel like that was one of the points they were trying to get across. There was also this weird thing about like the, the weird toilet abortion thing. So I don't know if that was something else that they were trying to get into. I feel like I made up a huge plot line for 
the um the fire chief there i feel like he's taken steroids to because he was like unable to protect his son in another fire because he hallucinated during like one scene and he's also an old man taking copious amounts of steroids yeah now you talk so there's a lot you've kind of thrown at me here um i don't know exactly which part you want me to latch on to but i agree uh trans identity was a pretty big uh part of themes that the movie's trying to get into and was there let me let me ask you this was there a point where you felt like this is when the character alexia is actively trying to embrace her identity as a as a man instead of as a woman because there's a bunch of different points where she makes steps towards that but it doesn't really seem like any of them like you said a lot of them are in pursuit of i don't want to be caught as a serial killer so i'm going to change my identity to try to escape instead of i'm trying to change my identity because i i want to be a man so i thought the i thought like the real turning point there was when she finishes shaving her own head like after the the police chief had shaved like part of her head she comes back and like thinks about killing him but then doesn't because also there's some things about like daddy issues here i guess but when you say like fully embraces i don't know if that actually is correct maybe because she towards the end of the movie goes back to doing the showgirl dance on top of the fire truck let's talk about that is it possible for a man to do a showgirl dance? I mean, it is. Yeah, I, I was thinking that literally as the words came out of my mouth. I'm like, oh, well, because there was also like something about the lighting and the fact that like, yeah, this this could totally just be a bunch of uh, dance parties that the fire station is throwing. But there was something about the lighting and maybe it's just me doing the thing where it's like shirtless men is always gay in movies, but it felt kind of gay. So, okay let's let's talk about that scene in particular right so the a lot of the dancing that the men are doing is like typically associated with like male types of dancing and even heterosexual male dancing where they're just kind of jumping up and down and sort of mosh pitting effectively you know bumping up into into each other this is like the most heterosexual style of dancing for men basically right they're not and then, their bodies yeah. any they're not like uh placing their hands on themselves their their hands are at their sides or up in the air and they're jumping up and down that's all the fact that they were shirtless i guess is like a little bit more towards that like not so heteronormative thing but you know i don't know they're in a firefighter like purple lighting like uh during that first one something about that like and I can't really put my finger on it, so I'm I'm fully accepting if I'm like missing the point entirely here. I think a lot of times they use water and fire, which fire being red and water being blue, so purple in this case would be sort of both. Fire was meant to indicate this is a scene about men or being manly, and water was meant to indicate this is a scene about being a woman or being feminine. And similarly with the colors of blue and red, we get one the scenes where he's like giving himself steroids in the bathroom. The bathroom's like pink, which is again red, but it's sort of that toned down red, that more feminine red. So this is meant to indicate to us visually that him taking steroids is admitting that he's not as masculine as he'd like to be. Uh, yeah, that's fair. I, I, so I didn't want to be as ham-fisted in saying that like, ah, oh, he's in the pink bathroom shooting up steroids. But like that, that makes sense. It's almost as if the movie is trying to suggest through the father Vincent's sort of steroids and him trying to become more masculine and 
all these things. It's almost as if they're suggesting that this is not too far removed from transgender identity issues, right? Uh, having a feeling like you don't feel very feminine and you are a lot more connected with masculinity and wanting to become a man instead of being a woman isn't entirely removed from being a man and growing old and feeling like you're not as masculine as you would like to be and doing things in order to change your body so that you can be as masculine as you'd like to be. All right. And I think that that was a really graceful way of sort of broaching that topic without screaming it at the audience. Because that's a very complicated thing to talk about, right? And and even more complicated is trying to connect those two separate issues, right? Yeah, no, that's fair. I, th- I think that's probably where, where my whole idea that they were trying to tell multiple stories came from. Because, I mean, I guess you, you can do that. Well, you can do whatever you want with a movie. We don't have to just spend the whole movie talking about the parts that I noticed. Like, there's somebody out there that's taking Vincent's story uh, closer to heart than, I forget her name. Uh, Alexia. Alexia, yeah. Somebody's taking Vincent's story closer to heart than Alexia's. Yeah, so uh, the scene where I felt that Alexia had more embraced her male identity, uh, you were really close when you guessed uh, that it was after the after he sort head of... Over, yeah, the head shaving and, and her walking in on him sort of like knocked out on the floor. I felt it was when she tried to run away and, you know, because he he tells her, fight like a man. And in response to that, you know, she gets up and he, you know, he gives her the key to leave and, you know, she leaves. She gets on the bus and sees these guys come on the bus and they're just accosting this woman, calling her a slut and telling her how much they'd like to have sex with her and all these other perverse things and she keeps looking over at alexia and almost like hey save me or maybe like trying to reach out to someone with your eyes to let them know like i'm in distress basically and in my head in that scene i thought for sure alexia was going to stand up and do some of her serial killer stuff and go kill those guys right right but she just leaves and goes back in that moment it does kind of seem like maybe she's coming back to kill the dad to kill vincent but then it's sort of not about killing vincent and it becomes about you know sort of being there with him or, or for him or, or something it is really complicated to pinpoint exactly when during that but i do agree it's right around then and for right. me in my head when i was like oh i guess she's gonna go back and embrace her role as uh, vincent's son and maybe embrace start start to more embrace her identity as a, a man. I don't I don't know if she ever did get to that point where she was like I'm a man, I'm, you know, I have fully transitioned in this way because even at the end of the movie she keeps wanting to be called Alexia. She's like I'm Alexia, my name's Alexia. So that's the thing. It's like so Vincent catches her doing this showgirl dance and is put off by it in in some sense. I'm not really sure why there. But he goes away. She has sex with a fire truck and then goes and tries to seduce Vincent, who has just tried to set himself on fire. I'm going to skip over that because I don't get that right now. But anyways, yeah, tries to seduce Vincent. And then and then we go back into the fact that she's pregnant with a car baby. So, like, I don't know if this is just tying into, like, the confusion that she's trying to reconcile these feelings or or something there i I don't know if she ever like fully had a conclusion to the no i am i am wholeheartedly a man explain to me please okay vincent early on in the film said that uh if anyone ever hurts uh alexia or hurts his son he will kill them even if it's himself he'll kill himself right that, that was the callback there with the fire potentially uh, I said okay. earlier that there's a lot of like thematic use of fire and water in this film. 
And again, we, we get that exactly in this scene, right? In the scene where Vincent is lighting himself on fire, we cut away to Alexia, who is now beginning to, it seems, uh, give birth. And when you start giving birth, it's common phrases that your water broke. Your water breaks, his water is coming out of her. Uh, and for him, fire is coming on to him. You see the see what we're doing here? While, while we're on the topic of the water breaking, sure. is there anything there about the fact that it wasn't water breaking, it was oil, which... Which catches fire. Which catches fire. Uh, yeah, so there's certainly something here. And, it, and it, it all sort of plays into the constant connection between Alexia and cars. Cars are like fire combustion engines, basically, you know, with, with a bunch of metal put around them. Right. And, and, you know, even from that first scene and very much in real life, they're kind of a fill-in for machismo. Yeah. Masculinity, cars and being a man are like one in the same, right? Yeah, pretty much. Just like killing and being a man are one in the same, right? Mm, indeed. So a lot of these things that are typically associated with being a man, Alexia sort of has as part of her character. So that's, this is where it sort of becomes a little awkward for me though, where Alexia starts off and she's sort of humming along with the car and it seems like there's a clear like through line where we're connecting her with the car and then she gets into a car accident and immediately has metal literally put inside of her brain, basically. So I'm not sure if the movie is trying to indicate that like transgender identity is something that is like placed inside of you by an outside body or if that's something that was in you all along. Wow. Uh, all right. Right. Because that's a that's a really important point for a lot of people. A lot of people feel very strongly one way or the other about that. And the movie kind of seems to sort of have it a little bit both ways, question mark, because again, she had an affinity for cars as a young girl before the accident. Then she has this accident and has metal or a car or being a man put inside of her surgically i i see where you're where you're coming from that that is that is confusing and possibly like a less good take in my opinion for that movie to go i think the movie's trying to do both yeah yeah because I, I mean you know she clearly has like if we're to say that cars are masculinity cars are being a man she has an affinity for cars to begin with she is humming the sound that the car is humming she is one with the car she is a man and then she gets a metal piece put into her head, you know, metal being the main component of a car, or at least the thing that we associate with cars. And so here we are, she's having it surgically put onto her, into her body. It seems like it wants to sort of acknowledge both camps in this way, but maybe there's some virtue in saying, well, by showing her, you know, before the accident, already being in tune with masculinity, with being a man, with cars, by showing that first, that means that the director is trying to say that this is something that you are innately and you don't have to change anything about yourself you don't have to do surgery you don't have to have it implanted in you by an outside body you already were that way it depends on how you want to read it and that's up to it not to put a pun on this but your mileage will vary Ah, so while we're just talking about shit that i didn't understand oh do go on there there was a point where uh vincent is introducing alexia to the rest of the fire crew and he says what am i to you i'm god and that makes him Jesus. And there was a couple of points in the movie where they like had light shown on Alexia, like while while she's like uh, in the turmoils of giving birth on the fire station floor. Uh, there's like a light shown across her face. Is there like some sort of religious imagery that I'm supposed to be tying into here? I mean, certainly you could make a uh, an argument that uh, Alexia is sort of the transgender Jesus. 
she sacrifices herself for the sins of her father. And certainly she is in, inheriting the sins of her father. Her, her father didn't have very much patience and he was very aggressive with her. And that caused her to be in this accident where now she is deformed in some way. It didn't seem to really affect her later on in life, but maybe that's why she was, you know, going on these, all these killings or what have you. This is certainly not the, the Jesus that we have come to understand in terms of like turn the other cheek and, you know, all, all of those types of things. Things. It is the rebirth is an, aspect of it. Yeah, it is an aspect of of the Christ analog that is somewhat interesting. Yeah, and at the end of the movie, God is given you know this innocent man now, you know, or an innocent child. We don't know if it's a boy or a girl or anything, but an innocent human being that is no longer that doesn't have any sin that he can now inherit as his new son, which is sort of the story of Jesus, right? He you know sacrifices himself so that God can inherit man as a sinless creature wiping right. away their past sins. I uh, I think we can safely say that this movie was, as as I said, very emotionally resonant as, as this director tends to want to be and relies a lot heavier on pulling at your heartstrings than at explaining to you why you're fucking stupid or anything like that. She does not tell you what she's trying to get at. She tries to get you to feel what she's trying to get at. Right. I, I noticed that pretty early in the movie. Like I, I was trying to do like the smart things and I'm like, oh, and, and I couldn't nail down the point where I was supposed to be like understanding something innately but there there were points that were just emotionally charged like the 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 abortion on the toilet like it, that was a really emotional scene and her her trying to break her nose off the sink when she's running away like the I felt enough there where I was like oh there's there's something here that I'm not quite getting so I'm just going to like take it by feel from this point on in the movie cuz yeah just just following what was shown explicitly and what was said explicitly uh, led to a very confusing movie this movie was difficult <laughs> to, to keep track of for me i think we do need to take some more time out of this podcast to respect other countries uh filmmaking technique i guess is the word i'm looking for because this is very very much a french film oh, there, there's watch. french tropes that i i'm missing uh yeah i mean their willingness to show the female body as just like we've talked about this previously on the podcast and sometimes it seems american filmmakers can do this too but showing the female body as just a body and not as something like hypersexual that we're supposed to constantly be sexualizing the movie was very good at like showing you when they were sexualizing a character and when they were just showing you a person right no that's fair a lot of times people will ask you like what's your favorite scene in a movie and it's hard to really describe but i think my favorite one for this one is the scene where she's put on top of the fire truck and she's dancing in front of all these guys and they're all reacting sort of disappointedly and then her dad comes out and he reacts disappointedly and it's all the same she's just as proficient as a dancer as she always was she didn't get any worse at that or anything thinking about that and then thinking about the scene earlier in the film when she's doing kind of the same moves a lot of similar moves but she's a woman and she's wearing like very sexualized clothes and everything and it's just a totally different reaction that she gets out of people i don't know i just i love that i, I thought that was so smart such a smart way to show us like the difference between sexualizing someone and just seeing them as a person i feel i feel like i caught alexia's story here or at least like the story that she's meant to portray to the audience here i feel like i caught that and then i just i feel like there was something with vincent that was samey but not like so yeah he hallucinates this kid during their their fire thing he's got an ex-wife that comes up and furthers that plot line i don't know ba basically my takeaway from vincent is that like he's got a kid he wasn't able to save and now he's like a little manic about it i think he even kills uh one of them other i i'm assuming he died i think he died 
no, uh, the guy died, that he handed but, the propane tank off to. But remember, he said anybody that hurts uh, Alexia will be killed. And he had just uh, sort of mocked Alexia. So he killed him. I, I, I definitely, yeah. So, so I got that. Is there something different I'm supposed to be getting out of Vincent's story? Or is this just like a supporting story for Alexia? So it's hard to say exactly, right? I mean, me am Grog. Me only read first few chapters of Moby Dick and only understand simple themes like uh, aggression. I no understand themes like human nature. It too complicated. You know, I, I, I get where you're coming from here. And a lot of this is also lost on me as well. I'm not perfect at reading these things. And uh, me, I'm Grog. Me, no understand complicated themes. There are certainly some things about Vincent's character that I think are meant, they're specifically in there to be in support of Alexia's story and her arc and everything. You know, things like the the steroids and whatnot. And uh, yeah, the steroids in the pink bathroom and the he's, he's raging about how he isn't as strong as he'd like to be. He's very forceful with Alexia. You know, why don't you talk? Even a bird can talk. You don't even have to be human to talk. My phone can talk. Why can't you talk? That's in service of Alexia's uh, plot as well, because it sort of shows how men can can be aggressive and forceful with you and still be meaning well. Like it's just coming from a place of frustration. It's not coming from they're going to hurt you now. I thought that was I thought that was nuts. They have that moment of tension there. And then Alexia gets up to try to leave and he's like, no, no, wait, just stay. You'll see it's not that bad. And when she turns around, he's dancing. Dancing, yeah, that that caught me off guard too. I have to applaud him and his ability to like diffuse a situation where he, it seems to me, maybe he doesn't actively understand this, but at least subconsciously maybe he understands that he's being masculinely aggressive and like forceful with her. And sort of the opposite of that would be to be sort of more inviting and more feminine. And that's what's, what is more inviting and feminine than dancing. And especially the way he was dancing, he's not dancing like the guys are at the, at the end of the movie where they're just jumping up and down and bashing up into each other. He's kind of, you know, twirling around and putting his hand out there for her. Um, I did feel it, like that dancing got like, like that, the, the, the tempo of it got more aggressive. And I was wondering what that was about. Cause it starts I, off. Uh huh. I'm dancing, now we're dancing, and look, a spin, and then he's, like, violently spinning her, and then it turns into a little bit of a slap fight. I'm wondering what he's trying to draw out of her at that point. To me, it sort of read as the dancing was sort of to try to disarm the situation and invite her into some sort of physical contact and, like, a degree of intimacy, and then sort of the upbeat tempo of it, and then the the physical, like, touching and the slapping and the, and the wrestling around and everything was to indicate like, hey, see, there is more, there is masculine aggression that isn't hurtful. There's a difference between like someone going out of their way to get you, to hurt you, to harm you. There's something else when they're just trying to interact with you. And this is just me interacting with you in a way that's a little more tough, but it's not to hurt you. I'm not trying to do wrong to you. And that's, I think that's a, that's an effective way to teach that because that is something that we do have to learn. You know, you can be harmed by something, you know, someone can, you know, slap you a little too hard or something. And that's, not great, but you're not hurt. You're not gonna, you don't need to see a doctor or anything. You're okay. There's a lot of visual imagery I really liked in the movie, like when she's uh, like lactating oil and whatnot. I thought that was interesting. I think the opening scene in the movie where it's like, um, she's got the vest with the lion on it. And when we zoom in on it, there's um, that uh, engine roar sound that accompanies it. And then she's dancing on the, the car that's got the fire wrap on it. Yeah. Like I, th I thought that whole, that whole scene was 
pretty cool for like giving her power in the situation at the very least. Yeah. I will say uh, the music in this movie is just banger after banger. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I almost forgot. I don't know if it was just to tie into the fact that like earlier in the movie, they were playing the same song with her dad. And then later on in the movie, they're playing the same song. And then Vincent shows up and is disapproving. But right. that, that whole song about crossing the river Jordan is, is about death. Is it, is it supposed to be like the death of like her feminine self or was that literally just a callback to, Hey, your, your actual dad was playing this song too. So it's, it's hard to say it's probably both. I, I don't imagine they picked that song lightly and there's certainly a million other songs that evoke similar feelings, but aren't about death. I'm, I'm leaning more towards that as astute observation on your behalf. I wonder if at the end when the song comes up and the Crossing the River Jordan song comes up, is that song actually playing or is it just in her head? Because the music that was playing before it at the party what was hypey fucking uh, party uh, music. drum and bass or fucking uh, hard bass fucking dance music. Yeah. And then they throw they throw her up on the, the, fire, the fire truck. Yeah, the fire truck and, and they start playing this like sad, somber, slow country kind of thing. Which like yeah. Fit her dance, I guess. Yeah, I mean, she knows how to dance to a tune and everything, but I wonder if she's like, if there's no music playing at that moment, like, again, we're back she's to... supposed to have given a speech or something like that? I think what she was supposed to do was jump out into the crowd and they'd catch her. Ah. Bunch of really strong dudes all standing there, you know, telling her to go for it and whatnot, and it's like, either they wanted her to do some crazy dance, which seems, uh, I don't know, maybe probable... Or, or they, you know, wanted her to go up there and jump off into them. And I think that that seems just as probable. It is it is a little confusing, though. That's another thing about uh, foreign filmmaking is that they don't explain everything to you. In an American film, as they were pushing her up there, she would turn around and go, well, what's up here? And they would go, oh, you go up there and you jump off. It's super sick. And that way the audience <laughs> would know what the stakes are. So is that just indicative of, I don't know, American film dumbing stuff down for the audience? Like, like our French films really just made in this way where it's like, no, 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 <laughs> we, we want you to think about it and come to a conclusion. Well, the French culture has a lot to do with understanding satire and understanding when something is a joke and these sort of more complicated things that like the American culture really doesn't have. The most that we have in our culture that is like sort of similar is we, we talk sarcastically to each other like, yeah, I'd totally like to go to the dance with you and what you're trying to say is that you would not like that but that's about as close as it gets the french are a lot more in tune with legitimate satire and the complexity surrounding that i guess that sort of translates a little bit or maybe is a result of i'm not sure which came first the chicken or the egg but um you know is part of the the aspect of their filmmaking that is it's okay to leave this stuff out. People will piece it together or it won't be important enough for them to notice at all. Okay. I also think it, it lends a little bit of uh, reality to that type of scene. A lot of times when you go to a party or like a really loud, boisterous event like this, people will expect things of you without explaining them or they will explain them, but you won't hear. Right. So it's pretty realistic for, for somebody who's never been in this fucking hard bass all-male dance party to get thrown up on the truck and, and have no idea what the correct answer is supposed to be. I kept... Were you, was I the only one in that scene where I kept expecting the dad to give some sort of positive affirmation to uh, Alexia? Like, yeah, that's my son up there. Yeah, you're such a good dancer, son. Good job. Something, right? Yeah. 
because he's been pretty supportive of absolutely everything up till this point. I didn't feel that specifically. What, what I was thinking was at first I was like, this is an awkward scene. And everybody instead, like, I feel like the dad was was disappointed more than the crowd was because there was only like one person in that crowd who act, who like actively had a look of like either disgust or confusion. And they were like a background, uh, like not in focus character. Everybody else was like, I felt more enraptured by the fact that somebody was even doing this like at all i kept thinking about that throughout the film because there were quite a few little parties that would be thrown i'm like man french parties just seem fucking nuts like it's literally a room full of dudes who all work with each other every day anyway and they're still having a gay old time like they're just jumping (laughs) up and down dancing around and smiling and having a good time if i were at that party i'd be like yo i work with you guys like every day of my life why would I stay after work to like jump up and down with you? I'm not meeting anybody new. I'm we're probably only going to talk about work. Like this isn't fucking fun. Right. And they're like, no, 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 no. We, we go after the party. Oh, so that's, that's something else I was thinking because I, I I'm unfamiliar with French film, but considering they're so open with sexuality, I assume they're also open with like more vigorous drug use. So were the cigarettes actually just cigarettes? Shit, man. That's a good question. I don't think the movie really cared one way or the other how you interpret that because mm. they didn't really seem to like give it any time of day. This wasn't about drug use at all. This was just like, hey, this is a party. What do people do at parties? And in France, it's probably either cigarettes or drugs. And it's if anything, it's probably just like marijuana or whatever, like something that you know you wouldn't even bat an eyelash here at, in America. You know, you remember when he uh, when Vincent introduces Alexia to the group and he's like, "This is my son. I'm I'm God, and he's basically Jesus." Right. And he walks he walks out of the room and that. No, like- Jesus is a white gay man. Yeah, yeah. But before that, before that, he comes into the room because these two guys are talking and one of them is just laughing and the other one's like saying something he can't hear because he's so far away. The things that are being said is like, hey, is this new guy retarded or something? What's going on there? He must be, you know, real, he's real freak or something. And then this guy is just like, no, dude, what are you talking about? He's normal. But he's laughing while he's saying it. He's like, that's crazy you would say that. No, he's a normal guy. Look at him. He's normal. Yeah, what what was about, that was just a weird scene to me, like up until that point where I was like, when they're like, haha, Jesus must be a white gay man. I was like, all right. So like, there's a joke that maybe wasn't translated well or something, I thought. I don't know. I, I it is it is kind of bizarre, right? Like, why was this guy being so wholesome? It seems like the other guy's reaction is a little bit more normal. Like, this guy doesn't seem like he's a firefighter. The rest of us are like Jack Rip shredded, and we all like are pretty competent at what we're doing, and we're very confident young men. And he's like this beat up sort of scrawny fella. He looks doesn't even talk to anybody. He has no confidence. He has no strength to speak of. He has you know he's kind of lame. That seems like the more normal reaction because he sort of stands out in the group considering that everybody else is pretty consistent, which probably, again, furthers uh, Vincent's feelings of inadequacy as a man, right? He surrounds himself with young, beautiful, strong, virile young men, right? Right. I I do think it is a little odd that he's just so wholesome about it. Like, no, man, look, he's so normal. And we don't really get a lot of characterization for that guy. But even at the end, we can see him at the ending scene where everybody's looking up at Alexia dancing. And uh, he's making one of the less disgusted faces in the group. He's kind of just watching. So maybe he is just more interested that this is the part what what they've chosen to do. I I feel like that's something that I'm going to have to look up later and just see if like because I'd be willing to write that off as, you know, there there was a French to English translation that didn't follow. Or like you said, they're more they're more in tune with uh, satire. So maybe there was there's something I'm just not getting there. Yeah, uh, it's it's possible. It could just be a translation issue. There are some things that just don't translate very well. They're a little like, uh, you know what a spruce is? 
What do you mean a spruce? It's like a type of tree. Well, all right, yeah. So a spruce is a tree that is like uh, native to Poland, or maybe not native to Poland, but they have a lot of them in Poland. When the British were doing trade with Poland, they see them as like these uncivilized people, basically. And they're asking them like, what is this type of lumber we're buying from you? And they get like a shitty translation for that. And they're like, oh, spruce. And they think that that's the name of the type of lumber, but it's not. The name of the type of lumber is Prus, but in Polish, is the that s noise at the beginning there means it is from and then Prus. Oh, so it's sort of got this weird translation issue where we think it's spruce, but it's not spruce. It's Prus, and then the s there is just to let you know it is from. It is um, from Prus. Like yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they wanted to know what kind of lumber it was, and they were like, "Oh, it's from Prus." They didn't have like a thing for it. They just said it's that's it's from this area. So it could just be one of those kinds of things. Who knows? But yeah, that that did that did stand out to me as sort of odd. I I really did love the movie. I uh, one aspect of uh, the the birth scene that was a little interesting to me, uh, and this sort of ties back to what I was talking about earlier, is that uh, the baby was born with these sort of metal parts already, like in its spine and in the side of its head and whatnot. Right. Considering our conversation up till this point, I assume that's supposed to be that like the baby is now like very masculine. Yeah. So is it a sign that the baby baby is very masculine or the sign that the baby has inherited its mother's like transgender identity situation. Mm, I guess that's true too. If we had known the gender of the baby, maybe we'd know more. But there's a there's a way to read this both ways where up till now it's been like metal is is masculine. Like if we're if we're to put a simple one to one on it, but but also like you said, you know, the the trait of being partially metal ties into its mother's transgender. I, I like I guess it's fair to read it either way. It, it probably means more that that latter way. Yeah. So I don't I don't know exactly because I'm sure there are probably people who believe that you can inherit transgender uh, ideologies from your parents, maybe genetically or maybe just socially. But that's not true, right? Like we know for a fact it's not like a genetic thing or at least we know with some degree of probability it's not a genetic thing and you know as far as socially like there are very few things that i do because my parents did them you know most of the things i do i do because i i know what my parents did and i want to do the opposite of that did, did you ever did you ever hear the um i only heard about it through like a tiktok video but apparently there's this school of thought that uh you have inherited your parents sexual preferences if if your mom liked to eat ass that's probably why you like to eat ass. That's an interesting topic to discuss, right? Because we have so little research on this. There's next to nobody who's out here like, how many people can you visit and ask like, hey, did you talk to your parents about what their sexual preferences and kinks are? Can you list all of them? And how many of them match up with your sexual preferences and kinks? Also, did you ever talk to your parents or grandparents about this topic specifically? And how right. many people do you think would say, yes, I do have all that information on hand right now, in fact. And, and, and willing to share it with a stranger. Yeah, like, I'm willing to share it with a scientist. It's strange enough if somebody knocks on your door and you're, they're like, do you like to eat ass? Well, I'll bite, stranger. Yes, I do. Are you aware whether or not your mother or father like to eat ass? That's when you slam the door. <laughs> right, yeah. So we have so little research on this. It's very possible that that could be the case. And I don't know if like there's been some new study where they like forced people to do this. But even then, again, this is the kind of subject matter that it's very likely people would lie. You know, like people would go and ask their parents or grandparents and then when they found out the horrifying truth they'd come back and be like oh my uh my parents were into missionary and my grandparents were into uh reading the bible and uh that's their favorite sex positions so yep 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 <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why i like doing missionary while i read the bible yep that's uh i uh <laughs> I don't 
don't know how they would how they could possibly do this study without like w while trying to mitigate like that shame factor and trying to hide your your family because well, like, that's shame. the thing it's like you have to be in a relationship with somebody for like a certain amount of time before you even start really doing the deep dives it's like yeah you might come out and be like i like feet and it's like oh what do you like about feet it's like oh it's not important right now and then it's not until you're like really comfortable that you're like i really like that area between your toe and your toenail nobody's telling this to an independent researcher and and then especially if that independent researcher has to be like somebody like your kid or your grandkid right right like th that person that's coming to ask you these questions is gonna be like your kid or your grandkid there's no way you tell them an honest answer and especially with older people the older you get typically the more like shamed people are for their sexual identity and their sexual preferences so it probably won't be for like another generation or two before there will come a generation where it's just like a 70 percent of them are like yeah i can just tell people what my sexuality is and what my specific preferences are openly because why would that matter the paradigm on this has shifted the, the weird sexy thing in this movie seems to sort of be like car sexual question mark. You mentioned once that there were two car sex scenes in this movie. Yeah, the first one, like the first one, I was like, okay, cool, because because she's different and and the body dysphoria and and that all makes sense. But then she did it a second time. Like I said, that one that one confused me a little bit. It's not even the most out there fetish I've ever heard of. I think the first time, I didn't get that from the first time at all. The first scene, I literally thought it was just her, like, it was supposed to be an expression of how excited she was by uh, killing for the first time. Like, that's how I took, what I took away from it. Like, this is an expression, a metaphorical expression of, I killed a man for the first time in my life, and I loved it. I felt so good about it. She immediately goes, like, into a shower, which is kind of the place where people go when they're, like, traumatized to sort of, like, wash away the, the trauma in some way, right? Right. But she's more traumatized by the bodily fluids of the guy than anything that actually happened. She's like, yeah. ew, I've got... I've got human spit on me. That's horrible. Yeah. So uh, I guess what I was trying to get at was that in any other movie, that's what that scene would be. It would be like a sad, somber, oh, I'm so traumatized by killing a guy and look at me like I'm not crying, but the uh, the shower is effectively crying for me. Ha ha. Look at, look at what, how smart we are as filmmakers. But in this one, it's like you get like a second of her showering and then immediately she starts hearing some noise and she goes and checks on the noise and it's the car and she gets in the car and then the car starts a bumping and I'm like, what's, what's going on here? And then it, actually shows her like clearly having sexual relations with nothing other than the car and i'm like oh i guess this is her way of like expressing that that's the conclusion i came to from it it wasn't until the second scene that i thought you know maybe this has more to do with like the the crisis that she's feeling between her two different gender identities that she's trying to like land on i guess and this like car sexuality thing she's got going on is like a an expression of that in some way I guess I think I think that whole topic might be a little bit over me. It's heavily metaphorical. Like it's clearly meant to be a metaphor of some kind. Let me ask you this: Was she actually pregnant the whole film, mm. or was that also metaphorical? I would I would lean more towards that it was me metaphorical because it just seems like it came out every now and then to explain a thing, and then like, all right, I I got how many times in this podcast do I have to preface a statement with I'm not a woman, but. Um, I think the but, more you do it, the more normal it'll become. Okay, cool. Well, I'm not a woman, but I get the feeling that if you're like, 
almost ready to give birth, you're not ace bandaging that shit down. She does apologize to it uh, when she's ace bandaging it. And I guess that's yeah, the And there is, the there is some cool sound effects there that makes it seem graphic. You know, like as she's wrapping it up and you hear like that weird like cartilage bone snapping kind of noise. Mm-hmm. So so sure. But yeah, I, I feel like it's more a metaphor to her like coming to terms with who she feels that she is and, and how her outer body reflects that. And a lot of the horror that is associated with being a pregnant woman is sort of there, right? And that well, can... well yeah, like that I it was a pretty horrific scene having her try to like do a forced abortion with the, with the hairpin. Like, and I'm sure that that has even more horrifically real life correlations there that were meant to be like explored through that. Yeah. I I don't think it's any coincidence that she dies in childbirth. She didn't have an opportunity to get like a, an actual abortion and she had to try to give herself one, you know, admittedly when you're trying not to get caught for murdering someone is a little bit different than not being able to get an abortion because they're legal roadblocks in the way of that but i do feel like this movie sort of you know sort of accidentally uh, or maybe on purpose i'm not sure exactly how abortion works in france it sort of talks about that issue that we're experiencing now where there's a lot of problems that we're not accepting or we're not thinking about i guess that can come from a woman not being able to get a a proper abortion and having to just sort of feel like she has to do it at home and i think that this movie sort of touches on that it's sort of one of the things that's in there and it's not one of the like heavy themes of it that's brought up a whole lot but it's always kind of like the bomb underneath the table right we're all always sort of being reminded like oh don't forget she's going to give birth to this baby at some point you mentioned that the movie wasn't really a horror in the way that you uh you thought it was going to be a horror can you talk more about that she kills a guy and like that's horrific in its own way i i thought it was pretty cool how they handled it you know she basically stabs him in the ear he starts frothing at the mouth horrific like a horrific scene and it wasn't the serial killer aspects that were horrible <laughs> like that wasn't the horror like the horror was that like either she's delusional and that's why she thinks she had sex with a car or or the fact that she's like now giving birth to she got pregnant from a car like at least in her own head and or this idea that like she's turning into a car like that that was the horror aspect the fact that like they kept on having these pretty pretty gruesome images of her like scratching her skin so much that she finds a metal plate underneath or anything like that like the serial killer storyline feels like it was almost dropped entirely once there was no need for it anymore uh did you ever get this sort of weird feeling like maybe her dad raped her and that's why she's pregnant wow no you didn't catch any of that would you like me to say no there was definitely there was definitely something that i wanted to bring up about how like her father was cold towards her but he was cold towards her forever like it was only like i could have written it off as inattentive dad during the the opening scene with her as a kid but then, like, she comes home distraught, wrapped in a blanket, and I don't know if he saw the blood, and he's just, like, smoking a cigarette out the window, like, ugh, this shit again. He's, like, specifically shirtless. They could have had him in clothes. They had the mom in clothes. Um, right. And also, when she goes up to their room to lock them in the room, he sort of, like, attempts to get up out of bed to, like, go see her. And it feels kind of inappropriate for him to be, like, awake staring at her as she's coming into the room and not him be like, hey, close the door, get out of here, or something. So I guess there's there's also something that I got to thinking about now that you've mentioned it. She tends to kill the people that she ends up being, like, sexually entangled with. Like, the, the first guy she kills, you know, like, forces himself on her for a kiss. And then, like, the girl she kills, you know, she was having some kind of sexual relationship with that person. I'm pretty sure she killed her parents in that fire even though i don't think that was explicitly said so there's there's probably something there and she doesn't kill anyone else in the movie all of your i think 
all of the people listed are all the people she kills and all of them, you're right, she has some sort of physical or sexual uh, entanglement with other than her parents that we know of. Uh, there's also the scene where uh, the dad um, like gives her an inspection and it's like specifically kind of awkward. And then he just does a really quick one and he's like, you're fine. It's nothing. And she tells him to like come back and take a closer look at it. And he doesn't. Right. Yeah. That that seems pretty standoffish. Yeah. And like, I don't even know if her, her dad's a doctor or anything. We don't know what her dad does. That's true. We pretty much have no clue. All of these things could be part of us like overanalyzing a little bit. That's very possible. But they are things that are worth like noting at the very least. I think a lot of the horror in this movie comes from like social situations. You know, like when somebody is telling you like, why are you sleeping with your clothes on? Let me let me help you take those clothes off. I guess this is a dad talking to his son in the context of the scene, but it does feel really awkward, right? It makes us recontextualize the way that we think of like the, the parent-child relationship because... I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I felt like, hey, you don't need to be trying to dictate how this person sleeps. Yeah. Yeah. And I get it. Like the fil- the clothes are probably filthy. You know, you just got this person out of police custody and they were probably on the streets before that or whatever. You don't want like these dirty clothes, you know, ruining your nice bed sheets or whatever have you. But it seems like the kind of thing that you could just say, hey, before you go to bed, make sure to get out of those clothes and I'll, you know, just leave them on the floor and I'll pick them up and take them out. It it was strange to me how badly the dad wanted to jump right into perfectly normal life. And then later he just talks about like, like the, the mom's like, Oh, he doesn't talk. And he's like, yeah, he doesn't talk. I looked it up. It's normal. Okay. But like, did you learn nothing else while you were looking stuff up, man? <laughs> like what the fuck there was there was nothing in there about like hey when you're when you get someone back from them being gone for a very long time and they were like abducted or they just disappeared or whatever it's very likely that they experienced some serious trauma and you should just be backing off like give them as much space as possible and i get not wanting them to run away again so you kind of want to be helicopter parent a little bit but sort of resist that urge to the best of your ability <laughs> By the way, that was another, as far as horrific situations, when she busts in and just sees Alexia there, like, naked and very pregnant. Um, yeah, because that changes that changes the rules of the, of the movie. Up until this point, the rules of the movie were, we cannot let anyone find out that Alexia is a woman or pregnant or any of these things. We have to keep this hidden. That's sort of the drama here. And when that rule is broken, it is very shocking. And then uh, just the ex-wife's reaction there where it's like, I don't know who or what you are, but like he needs somebody and like, I guess he's latched on to you. So just do good, I guess. Like, I think that's real. That's a really sweet sentiment there where she clearly sees that like this whole situation is fucked. Like as soon as she opens that door, she's like, oh, crazy shit's going on. I see. I guess we never really see Vincent before the events of this movie but maybe he was an absolute fucking basket case before uh he found alexia it it seems like he was at least somewhat well adjusted enough well adjusted enough to have like this young man that works under him clearly be sort of a a son to him either that makes that guy more tragic i don't know if we got a name for him but uh basically the the guy that's there waiting for him with the food and everything like hey i heard you had a long trip so i brought some food for you and he's like oh that's very nice now go on and leave we have to you know go to sleep or whatever that guy who ends up dying because he, he is so defensive of Vincent that he's willing to accost this complete stranger and talk about how that's that's not who you think it is, so on and so forth. He is made explicitly more tragic because it seems like 
he is kind enough of a soul to help out this, as you said, a basket case. You know, Vincent is just totally emotionally distraught. Oh, and, and on that note, actually, this is probably something worth noting. Probably the only example that we will see in a very long time of a movie showing a man crying and being absolutely respectful about it. Most of the time, whenever a man is shown crying, it is somebody has just died or something like very like action sort of. Yeah, like something horrifying has happened, right? And that's cause for a man to cry in a movie. And they usually like sort of cash it in for dramatic value, right? In this movie, he just sort of starts crying after getting his son back, which is sort of more a joyous moment for him. And he's just like begging him, like, please say something to me. I just want to hear your voice. I just, I just want to know that you understand me and that everything's okay. And then he sort of regains a little bit of composure and he's like, you know, never mind. I'm sorry. You'll, you'll speak when you're ready to speak, but like showing him crying in that way and not like cashing it in for dramatic value or anything like that. If anything, the, the scene's supposed to feel a little bit awkward for us as viewers, because we know that this isn't his son and that this is sort of like, we're, we're glad that he's getting catharsis a little bit. Like he's feeling like he can cry and let out those emotions and everything. But we feel sort of awkward because we know that, you know, it's not the truth. I thought that that was very well handled and very well done in terms of showing us a man crying without it having to be like a big dramatic, oh, my wife just died and now I can cry one singular tear kind of thing. Do you think that that was like just filmmaking in general or something like that? Do you think that there's a lot of those types of scenes in French film? Like I'm, I, I hate bringing, I hate having to think about it like, oh no, this is, this is a French thing. But um, I don't know. You, you did mention that this is very much a French film. And I'm wondering how much I'm just accustomed to American film, that something that's jarring or something that's out of the ordinary is just because we don't do it. It's hard to say. There are some things that are more more French than they are. They're more like this is a thing that French uh, filmmakers do than they are uh, uh, things that American filmmakers do. But it, I wouldn't say in totality it is. I think it's just at this point, especially, you know, in 2021, any smart filmmaker should be able to recognize that this is a trope in filmmaking where, you know, men can only cry when somebody has died or something like that. Sort of like how somebody can only be pronounced dead if there's an explosion involved. These types of things that we just come to know as like filmmaking rules. Yeah, some of them are completely different in France. I don't know if men crying is specifically one of them. I don't want to put that on, you know, French filmmaking specifically because I'm not 100% certain. If this movie was made in like the 1980s, maybe we could say that. But in 2021, I think it's just like recognizing that this is just like a common trope of filmmaking and that, yeah, men are supposed to be able to cry at things that are like emotionally resonant. And this was for his character. Yeah, a very emotional, resonant, emotionally resonant moment. And again, I, I would like to reiterate, me am grog, me no no good difference between French filmmaking and American filmmaking. Me only understand simple differences between French filmmaking and American filmmaking. <laughs> me grog, French have the tatas, America no. I, I did think that that was interesting because like I didn't know if that was just like, if this is one of the things like, oh, we're making a French movie, there must be sex in it. But I know before we got into this, you you were completely like, well, you know, I'm interested. I think that there's going to be something about sexuality because, you know, that the French, they're, they're very open about that type of thing. And like, we're not 30 and 30 minutes into the movie before this woman's pregnant with a car. Yeah, I was surprised at like, I'm watching this movie and I'm like, you know, I said there was going to be some weird French sexy stuff in it. And then immediately we're like, we're watching a girl like twerking on a car and i'm like that's right. the most american thing i've seen all week <laughs> <laughs> i felt kind of bad i was like this better not be like the only sexy thing that happens in the movie it's gonna piss me off next thing the next scene is just her like dry humping a guy's face while firing an ak-47 into the air and i'm like god damn it <laughs> 
I, I don't know. I wish I had more context on who recommended this movie. By the way, big shout out to whoever recommended this movie. I mean, it was a good movie. Like, I, I, I was enraptured throughout the whole movie. There were definitely times where I was sitting there wide eyed going, there's no, I'm, there's no fucking way I'm seeing this. That the person who made this suggestion is a person I personally trust, uh, with making good choices on, on films. Uh, I, I know them to be a person of good taste. And, you know, we'll, we'll put them on the list of people who can make suggestions for the podcast going forward. The gold star of honor from the sea for yourself. Um, <laughs> signed Craig Penderton and Nipples Extravaganza. Yep. And then we need to start making uh, badges. Buy our merch. We're, we're going to make badges. Uh, but you're only allowed to buy it if we've authorized you to. I, I'd like to know what they have to say. Like, did, if we did this movie justice or if I... Completely missed the point. And this is actually just a love letter to the auto industry. I'm I'm willing to bet they're just like, I thought you guys liked cars. What the hell? What's all this about transgenders and sex and whatnot? I don't get it. <laughs> they're just listening to this and going like, well, I, I know you said you don't like French people in the other one, so I thought it'd be kind of funny to recommend a French movie. <laughs> that, that's what it is. We've missed the point entirely. I thought I, I just wanted to hear you guys rag on the French again. I thought I thought you guys would just make fun of French people the whole time. Dang it! This person's actually just like racist against French people, and that's all they're trying to get out of us. Like I saw this stupid French movie. I want to hear do do that thing from Prey, but do it for the whole time. Yeah, this is just a whole hour and a half of us being like, "Ugh, you know what really sucked about the movie? What's that? It was French. Oh god." <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! I, I would like to go ahead and state here. If there's anybody who's confused out there, because I actually I don't think we have any French listeners at this time, but I feel like any minute now, right? Um, well, well, so that that's the thing. It's like uh, we didn't have um, what was it? We did we didn't have any a- Asian listeners for the longest time, and then yeah. we suddenly got like twelve from Korea, and it's like, wouldn't that have sucked if like halfway <laughs> through our podcasting time, we're like, you know what really sucks about this movie? It's Korean. And it's- <laughs> oh no. <laughs> The, the one episode where we're just like, oh, this movie could have been better if it weren't Korean or if it had more to do with less to do with the Koreans, you know, whatever, whatever. What did, what did we say in Prey that we were like talking about how the French are so bad? We were just like, oh, finally. Oh, that's right. They finally the, the villain of the uh, of the Native Americans is no longer America. It's no longer the Americans <laughs> and the British. <laughs> it's France. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, the next time we're watching a movie and like America is the villain in the end, we'll just be like, you know, it could have been Korea or Belgium or <laughs> some other country. One of those guys. Yeah, yeah. It's always got to be America. You know what? I'm feeling awfully put upon by the American film industry. Yeah. Why? Why are American films always talking down on American people? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we'll call it a day there. Then that's enough horrifying things that i'll probably end up having to cut all right well that sounds good Uh, farewell mr nipples god bless america and no place else